Okay, let's get into the Word of God. Turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And uh, is it warm in here to any of you? I'm going to be soaking wet by the time I'm done. And I ain't going because I'm going to spill this water. But our brother's already turning it down. Ah, that's what I was looking for. I didn't know if it was written on the box. I was looking for the box to see if it was written on there, but it wasn't. But these right here are the little pamphlets to show you what can and cannot go in those boxes. So you really do need to grab one of these because there's some things that you just can't send, um, like toothpaste. You can't send toothpaste. And some other odd things like that. They've got their reasons. I'm not really sure why. But grab one of these, and it has the label on it that you can put on the front of the box. Okay, so uh, there are some of these up here, and I'm sure there's some more out there. So uh, grab one of those to know. And I think all the boxes are gone, and all those bags are gone. There are more bags. That was only 100 bags, and I think we need to do about 150. You might say, why? Well, we buy 100 turkeys, but sometimes when there's a big family, we'll give two bags or sometimes even three bags per turkey. So if it's a small family, they may, they may just need one turkey in a bag, and that'll do, but sometimes they may need more than that. So we try to bless them in that way. So there are more bags back there if you need more. Somebody's already asked me. A couple of times, so when you go out, we'll make sure that these bags are out here and you can grab them. Yes. Well, why don't you let me know how you pay the posters on, though, and I'll let them how. Okay, so, huh? Oh, she said there is a place to pay online, so maybe... Okay, so we'll, we'll, oh, it's on that thing right there, so praise the Lord. Okay, how you pay online is in that little pamphlet right there too. Okay, that's good, good information. All right, Hebrews, okay, one more thing. Can you, she only has one box, and she, if she wants to buy two, can she use a normal shoe box? Yes. Yeah, you can buy plastic ones at Dollar General, she said, or a regular shoebox. Yep. I guess you'll just need one of those labels, though, and the postage. Okay, Hebrews chapter 6, let's all stand to our feet for the reading and the hearing of God's Word. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 today, see how far we get. Uh, if you will, turn in your Bibles with me there, and let us read God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and, it, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. 
For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. So I want to kind of unpack these verses today and, and talk a little bit about what the author of Hebrews is trying to convey to his audience and how that might be relevant to us today and how it might parallel even a lot of the things that we see in modern day Christianity and the church. So first of all, I want to give a little bit of context. So I want to back up in the verses just a little bit and kind of show you what the author of Hebrews, and some would hold that the author of Hebrews is Paul, some think that it's Apollos, something that we just don't know. I tend to lean toward it probably being Apollos because it sounds a lot like Paul and their uh, connection was very close in some of the way that uh, the phrases are written and things like that. I lean toward uh, Apollos. I thought Paul for the longest time. I don't think anybody really knows for sure, uh, but we know that it's inspired. It's in the oldest manuscripts that you can find, and therefore uh, we can uh, be confident in accepting it as the breathed out, uh, inspired word of God. Uh, but as the author here is talking to his audience, and we hold the audience to be, some would say it's just Jews who are unconverted, some would say it's Gentile Christians, others would say it's Jewish Christians. Uh, so there's a little bit of uh, discussion amongst, uh, amongst theologians and commentators of who it's actually written to. I tend to think that it's written to Jewish Christians. It's written to those who would have a really, really... Uh, steep and and full background in the Old Testament, in Torah, in the the uh, prophets and the law of Moses, uh, but who have come to Christ and who have been uh, been given the gospel. And I think it's those who have at least on the on the face of it received the gospel, and now they're being taught and they're being trained what that looks like for them, having a, a, a really steep and thick tradition in Judaism, coming out of the Old Covenant into the New Covenant, how this transition is to look in their life from a Mosaic administration to a, a Jesus Christ or a, a Christocentric administration now, from the Law of Moses to the Law of Christ, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, and what that meant, and how the Old Covenant and the Old Testament foreshadowed and pointed to Christ and was fulfilled in Christ. And I believe that's what we're seeing here, is the author trying to help his audience transition from one tradition to this new life, this grace, this new covenant. Not, not as if there is a new way of salvation, but helping them to understand what the Old Covenant was pointing to and how it all was fulfilled in Christ. And anybody that was ever saved was always saved in Christ. But now the fullness of that understanding and the fullness of that progressive revelation. You remember in the first part of Hebrews it says, you know, at one time God spoke through his prophets, but in these last days he has spoken through his son. And so how does the fullness of Christ... Um, what does the fullness of Christ mean to those who were really hardcore given to the old covenant and the ways of the nation of Israel? What does it look for them now? 
So when we're moving from chapter 5 into chapter 6, because oftentimes what we can do is we can read a, a, a section of Scripture or a chapter of Scripture, and we can be completely blind to any context, and we can just read it as 2021 American Christians, and we can insert a meaning onto the text, completely devoiding ourselves from any good historical context and what it actually meant to the hearers and we can think that it's just written to us, which is very egocentric and it's very egotistical to think that, you know, this is, this is uh, you know, written about America or about, uh, you know, Americans or, or modern day Europeans or whoever. This is an author writing to a particular audience for a particular purpose. We need to understand that. And then we can try to understand how does this apply to us now? Are there any parallels? What can we learn from this and how can we apply it to our lives? So as we look at chapter 5, I'm just going to briefly move through chapter 5 to show you a little bit of the context, immediate context of chapter 6. So he's talking to these Jewish Christians, if our uh, understanding is right. And he says, He's talking about the priesthood. He says, for every, this is chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to other gifts and sacrifices, uh, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to, to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people talking about those earthly high priests he says you know these high priests are offering sacrifices for sins but they're offering sacrifices for their own sins too because they're weak and they're imperfect verse 4 and no one takes his honor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest but was appointed by him who said to him you are my son today I have begotten you so the point here is is that God is the one who appoints the priest God is the one who brings these into their commission and into their call but Christ is different from those uh, earthly high priests in this way that they were weak had to offer sacrifices for their own sins and the sacrifices that they did make did not atone for sins we know that from the book of hebrews and the rest of the new testament and even from the old testament as well that this was a foreshadowing act that pointed forward to what god would do through the perfect sacrifice the lamb of god but here what we see is is that christ is not only the perfect sacrifice which we'll see in a moment and throughout hebrews especially in chapter 10 that he is a sacrifice once for all from the for the cleansing of sin but he also is the high priest It's different from the earthly high priest in that he had no sin to be cleansed from so he could cleanse and he could intercede for the people of God in perfection and we know that that is what his intercession and his high priestly ministry and his his propitiation his payment that's what it is founded on listen to what it says and he says also in another place you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we don't have time to get into Melchizedek today and who Melchizedek was. Suffice it to say that what he is saying here is, is that Jesus Christ as a high priest is far superior to Aaron because Melchizedek was a high priest without lineage, at least now some would say that he's Christ. Again, we're not going to get into that. But Melchizedek is a high priest without lineage, appointed straight by God, and Abraham, who is the father of the covenant, the uh, covenant that was made with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, which, which uh, was previous to the Mosaic covenant, that Abraham offered sacrifice, Abraham offered tithes 
to Melchizedek, exalting Melchizedek above Abraham, which exalted Melchizedek above Aaron. Now, Jesus Christ is in that lineage, not according to the law, but according to the appointment of God as a son, which basically means that Christ supersedes Moses, Christ supersedes Aaron, Christ supersedes Abraham, and Christ is the high priest who was in all of these other priests foreshadowed the coming of Christ as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek forever and ever. Now, I'm going to skip to verse 11 because the teaching of Melchizedek, I'm just pointing out that this is what the author of Hebrews is teaching when he transitions to chapter 6. And here's a transitional statement. Now, he says, after this teaching of Melchizedek, he says, verse 11, about this we have much to say. About what? About Christ being the superior high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He says, we got a lot to teach you about uh, this this fulfillment of Christ uh, with regards to the priesthood and the offering of sacrifices. He says, but there's a problem. He says, this is what I would, I would like to expound on this. I have a lot to say, but there's a problem. That's what he says. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have, been, since you have become dull of hearing. So you have these Jewish Christians. They're supposed Christians. I put that in quotes because we'll see why in just a moment. But you have these Jews who are steeped in tradition, and it's not to take anything away from them. the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, these traditions were good and perfect and holy. They were, they were perfect for what they were intended to do. But what they were intended to do was to push you and compel you into the realm of Christ, the New Covenant, because Christ was the fulfillment of all of these things. And everything that they did in the Old Covenant was to teach them about Christ. But they had become dull of hearing. They had become, they had become uh, soft. They had become uh, unenthusiastic. They had become dull. Just they didn't really care. So it made it hard to explain it because they didn't want to hear it. You ever been talking to your kid and you can tell he's not paying attention whatsoever? And you're talking to him. Maybe he's playing a video game. He's focused on something else. And you're talking to your kid. You're going, look, this is what I want you to do uh, in your room. This is what I want you to do in the kitchen. He's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And you're like, you're not paying, he can't learn. It's really hard to explain anything to that child because he's not paying attention. He's dull of hearing you. He doesn't want to hear it. He's not excited about hearing it. He's focused on something else. He says, it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you should be teaching other people this. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Basically, he's saying that I would love to be able to explain this to you, but you are like a little child. You're a baby. You're an infant. You're, you're not excited about these things. You're, you're unskilled. I mean, that's, that's a pretty hard word coming out, right? But it was needed in this time. He's saying that you're an infant. You're still on the nipple. You're still on your mother's bosom. You need to grow up. You, need, you should be teachers by now. You should be feeding other people. He says in verse 14, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. These are the things that we should be able to do, that you should be teachers by now. And I hope you can hear this coming to you. We're going to show the application here shortly. But he's telling this, these Jewish Christians 
that you should be teachers by now. You should really know and understand the things of God, but you're distracted. You're dull of hearing. You don't want to hear about this anymore because your mind is on something else. And here we see that they're unskilled. They're not practicing. They're not listening to the message of the gospel, the new covenant teachings of the apostles and of Christ. They have grown dull and, and weary of hearing these things. They're not excited. And it is as if they are infants and all they have heard and all they have accepted are the elementary milk foundational things and they've not grown past that now let me just give a little bit of of application uh before we move any further we've not even gotten into our verses that i want to expound today but this is the context i want to show you this is that this is very similar i believe in parallel to the situation that we find ourselves in in the modern church is that so many people have heard the gospel, they've heard of Christ, and they said, oh yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I accept that. I see the Jews doing the same thing here. The Jews who were steeped in Old Testament tradition, the, these are uh, Judea, these are those who are in Judaism, okay? They adhere to the law of Moses, they adhere to uh, uh, all of the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices, and remember, there's nothing inherently wrong with those things, that's fine, but when they see those things as the end and those things as the primary um, uh, the, the primary teachings and the primary emphasis of the Old Testament scriptures, they fall short and they fail to realize that Christ is king and Christ is the new administrator of a new covenant. And so they're stuck in these old ways. They've, they've professed, they have come to a, a tasting, they have heard the gospel and they said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But they have remained where they are. Now, let me bring that into you know to you know the year 2021 and and maybe for the past who knows how long is that do we not have those around us who are steeped in tradition they have heard the things of christ they've said oh yes i believe in that but there's been no real transition from their former life to their life now there's been no true growth there's, there's been no pursuit in excited passionate um, practice in the word of God studying searching after the things of God reading the word continually and daily uh, uh, ex you know breaking it down uh, absolutely hungering and thirsting for righteousness and to know the word of God and and hiding the word of God in their heart that they might not sin uh, how many of you how many of us have been in that place to where we have gone to church for so long and we've done the Southern Baptist thing or we've done the Pentecostal thing or we've done the churchy thing the American church the modern church we've done the nominal Christianity we've done the thing where we go to church and we do all this but we're not growing there is no fruit there's no hunger and thirst for understanding of God's word we're not in it daily we're just going through the routines we have a tradition we don't have a faith you understand what I'm saying and I wonder if this would apply to many in this church, much less all the churches around. That the author of Hebrews might come in here and say, you should be teachers by now, but you're still needing to be taught. <laughs> Why? Because you become dull of hearing. How, how many people, when, I began, when we began uh, the, the well church and our hope and desire was to move on from just a foundational teaching, not that there's anything wrong with foundational teaching. We need those foundational teachings. But that if we stop there, then we're falling short of what Christ is calling us to do and, and the example set from the author of Scripture. And we say, well, we want to really go through books of the Bible and try our best to get as deep as we can without choking people on solid food. And I was told before we ever started that that won't work. Why? Because they can't understand that. 
They don't, they don't want that. My response was, who cares? Why is it that a preacher, whether it be me or anybody else, would preach what he preaches based on what the people want to hear. I don't understand that. We preach the word of God in season and out of season. And I'll show you that that's what the author of Hebrews intends as well. Listen to what he says. So you see this type of parallel here. That they're, the Jews, the Jewish Christians, they had heard of Christ. They had received it on the outset, on the face of it. They had received it. Oh yeah, that, that's okay, we're in. But they had stopped there. They had not progressed on fully. It's almost like fire insurance. Oh, yes, I profess. Oh, yeah, I'm going to heaven now. Oh, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I've received the new car. I've received. Oh, I believe all of that. And then they stop immediately and just go back to whatever they were doing. Go back to whatever they were doing. And the author of Hebrews here, here is saying that's immature. It's selfish. It's uh, weakness. You're an infant. You need to grow up. And it's just bam, 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 right? Well, here's a question that, that came to me as I was reading and transitioning into chapter 6. If, if you have a church, if you have a gathering, if you have an assembly where the people are not hungry for the, for the word of God, where the people are not thirsting after righteousness and a deeper understanding of the word, if they just want to hear about salvation, they just want to hear about repentance and those first things, they just want to hear about heaven and hell they just want to hear about resurrection should it be that the preacher and teacher should say well, okay well my folks aren't ready to go there yet let me stay back here and let me preach these foundational things over and over and over until I see a hunger and a thirst and an excitement is that what should happen well let's see what Hebrews says so coming out of chapter 5 he said you've become dull of hearing you're not excited you're not you're not practicing, you're not discerning, you don't understand good and evil, you should be teachers by now, but you're not, you're still on milk. So what, is, what does the author do? He says, therefore, since you're still on milk, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. You know, it's almost like, you, have you ever seen, and I, don't, I hope I don't step on too many toes with this, but you ever seen a mother who breastfeeds a child up to the point where the child can be like, mama, you've got to cut back on the Mexican food, <laughs> Right? No, no, what needs to happen, you know, you got a five-year-old and he's still on the nipple and you're going, this is really strange and awkward, right? So maybe the mom is stuck because she wants to show, mer the, the child wants the milk, the child loves the milk, he's cool staying with the milk, the milk is tasty, right? This is where he wants to be. And so the mommy's like, you know, let's look, put this in the context of teacher of the church, like, Oh, I don't know if they're ready for solid food. What if they choke, you know? Let's just keep on giving them milk. Well, at some point, that mercy becomes condemnation. At some, at some point, that mercy, see, Donnie, how that fit? I don't know where Donnie, but that mercy, that grace, supposed grace, becomes detrimental because now you got all the other five-year-olds going, bro. What are you doing? You know, what, we need, what needs to happen is either mommy or daddy, you know, maybe it has to be daddy because mommy's like, you know, very merciful and very compassionate and she's still wanting to give him the milk, you know. What, what needs to happen is daddy needs to pull him over to the side and say, hey, son, take a bite of this steak right here. <laughs> you know, get, eat some of this, you know. Uh, that's what Paul, well, Paul, Apollos, whoever's the author, that's what they're doing here is like, oh, you love milk? Steak! <laughs> you know, he says, you love milk too much, therefore... Let me cut you a piece of steak. And he says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Now, 
the odd thing is, I want to lay out for you here the things that are uh, the things that are foundational because I, I find this very, very revealing and very indicative of the American church. Now, I keep saying the American church because I'm, I'm aware of so many that surround us and, and what we always preaching and teaching and things like that. And it might surprise you. Um, maybe it will, maybe it won't. I don't know. But let's lay out for a second what is the author saying are the foundational teachings of the church that we need to get past? That we, we need to stop focusing on these things. We need to stop preaching these things over and over and over and over again. And we need to move on. Now, some of you may have a problem with this because you come from a Southern Baptist. And I say Southern Baptist. I come Southern Baptist. We're affiliated with a Southern Baptist. I, you know, I love my Southern Baptist brothers. But there is an issue. Is that if you've ever been to, you know, some Southern Baptist churches. But Pentecostal churches do it. All kind of churches do it. And you go in and you hear the same exact message every single Sunday. And what is that message? Jesus loves you. Down on the cross for your sins. He has a plan for your life. Come down here. Receive Christ. woo Right? Next Sunday. Jesus died on the cross. He loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Walk this aisle. Pray this prayer. woo Next Sunday, what is it? Jesus Christ loves you. He died on the cross for your sins. Come down here. Receive him. woo Right? It's like evangelism centers. Well, let me break it to you this way. The church was never, ever, ever, ever intended to be an evangelism center. It's just not meant to be that way. I hate to break that to you. Now, do people get saved in the gathering of the saints and the assembly? Yeah, sure. Praise God when that happens. We love that. We give a time of response here at the end of the service. If God has moved on you and, and you uh, feel the Spirit drawing you and you want to be saved, praise God. Do not harden your hearts as in the days of old. Come and be saved. Enter into God's rest. But what is the church intended primarily to be? You know this. What? Equipping the saints is a training ground. It's not an evangelism center. It is a training ground. It is where you come to be trained in the things of God so that we might reach maturity. Ephesians chapter 4. This is what the church is for. It's not an evangelism center. And this is what Paul is saying here. Now watch this. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. I mean, that should be mind-blowing. He said, let us leave the elementary teaching of Christ. What? I thought we were to teach Christ every single Sunday. Now, I hold to that. But what I don't hold to is, is that we should say, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Come down here, receive him, and that's it. What we need to do is leave the elementary teachings of Christ and move on to the things of maturity. What? The mature things in Christ. See, Christ is the sum total of all things. And we can teach the elementary foundational truths, and we can teach them in Christ, or we can move on to show how Christ fulfills every other aspect of Scripture as well, Old Testament and New. You see, Christ is the sum total. In Christ are all the yeses and amen. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in, in Christ, okay? So let's look at these foundational things that we need to get past. He says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from the dead, uh, repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So these five things he's saying, these are good, these are foundational, but we should be past these by now, and we should be moving on to the better things. Well, number one, now remember we have a Jewish-Christian context that we are coming out of, so he is speaking to Jewish Christians, okay? 
And he says, therefore, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. So he's looking at, now remember that faith, uh, repentance and faith, they are Old Testament teachings. It's not like these are new things. What he's trying to show them is, is that these, he's already told them. We can, we can surmise at this point that what they've already received is the teaching that Jesus Christ is the goal of, is the, is the focus of all repentance from dead works and faith. That Jesus Christ brings about the end of works for righteousness sake. We know that, Romans chapter 3. And that faith in Christ as Lord and as Savior is what faith in God uh, is what it's all about. So he's saying, you've already heard that you repent and have faith in Christ. That's where that begins. So what, is, what do we understand that in our language, in our Christianese today, in our modern context? We just understand it as salvation, right? That we need to stop preaching salvation every single Sunday, and that's it, right? That we need to move on past that. Is it coming into view now that the church is not an evangelism center? Supposedly, now this might be a little controversial, though I don't think it should be. It should be that all of you are believers in here today. Why? Because believers are the ones being trained in order to be a mature body of Christ. And that all of you believers out there are being trained in the ways of God. You're being pushed. You're being challenged. You're growing. And that you, as trained warriors and soldiers of Christ who have overcome by the blood of the Lamb, you're not given to sin anymore like that. You're not needing to be saved. Why would I keep preaching salvation to a group of people that have supposedly already been saved? but that you would rise up as soldiers, as those who have been saved. You're people of God. Now you need to be trained. You need to practice daily what it means to be a child of God and a warrior of God and a soldier of God. And go out there and you're the ones that are, are, that are for, to proclaim the foundational truths to a lost and dying world that they would be saved. And when they are saved through your proclamation of the gospel that you've been trained in, they would then come to the church, the gathering of a assembly of saints because now they're saints and that they would be trained here too and that through their training they with you would go out and and preach the gospel proclaim the foundational truths and bring more in you see the discipleship salvation discipleship this is how the kingdom grows right if we're just saying hey listen go get your friends bring them in here so we can try to get them saved that is not the biblical model it's not so many of you guys think that I'm the only one that, that can proclaim the gospel because I stand up here on Sundays. You, you fail to realize I'm just one of you. I could come and sit down right there and just read the Bible. I'm just one of you. It's my job and your job to go out there and proclaim the gospel that they might become saved and come in here and be trained. So how about this? How about the author of Hebrews says, you need to stop preaching salvation every single Sunday and focusing on that. I mean, tell that to the modern church. I mean, I want you to think about the components of the modern church's Sunday service. Listen to the next one. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instruction about washings. Now remember, in Old Testament understanding, there was multiple washings in the uh, Mosaic Covenant, in the nation of Israel. There was all type of ritualistic washings and cleansings. He said, I've already taught you about what all of those ritualistic washings was about. 
What is it about? How do we become cleansed? What's sanctification about? Sanctification in the New Testament, sanctification literally means washing clean, to make clean, to come to a place of cleanliness. What is sanctification? What were all of those washings and ceremonies, what were they about? And it's not to say that you couldn't even do that anymore. He's not telling these Jews you can't do that anymore. That's fine. Do that all you want to. That's great. Honor who? Honor Christ in those ways. But understand that we are washed by the blood of the Lamb. It's all about Christ. He's saying, listen, go ahead, wash. Do the washings if you want to. But as you're doing those washings, and as that water runs over, and as you're in the bowl and you're washing, just make sure that you are honoring Christ, that Christ is the one that truly washes away sin. It's Christ. And, and what do we know the fullest representation and symbolic act in the New Testament is of washing? It's baptism. It's that we're plunged beneath the water. We're buried with Christ. We come up out of the cleansing water into the, the life of Christ. We're buried with Him and we're raised in newness. All of our sins are washed away. Come on in, fellas. The water's fine, Right? But Christ is the one who washes us. And baptism is symbolic of being washed in Christ. It's a, it's a place of remembrance where we remember what Christ has done. But remember why I'm teaching this. It's to teach us that we've got to get past that again. Right? Every Sunday we, you know, be saved, be baptized. But you know, this, he's saying, look, that's great, that's fine. But you've got to get beyond that. We've got to stop just preaching salvation and baptism. What else? What else? Apollos, Paul, whoever, what, what else, Arthur, what are you, okay? Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands. What is the laying on of hands? In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, some might suggest that it's a type of healing thing. I don't, I don't think that's what he's meaning and int intending here. I think it's just a more of a commissioning thing. That you would lay your hands on to commission one before a group of believers or before the assembly. That you would lay your hands on them to uh, kind of administer your blessing, your approval. We see Paul doing this to Timothy. Uh, we know in Timothy he says uh, that fan the flame uh, into uh, fan, fan the gift I give you, fan it into flame, fan this into, into flame and, that I gave you through the laying on of hands. So it would be much like when we, uh, when we bring an elder before the church to uh, admonish them and to set them forth and commission them, call them, that we would lay hands on them and that we would say, I am giving my approval. I, I believe as well that God is calling this man or this woman into service or whatever it might be. So it's this commissioning. So it's a setting apart. So we have salvation, we have baptism, and we have call and commission. So it's, what is it? It's the beginning of a Christian life. <laughs> That's what it is. And what do we find in so many of our teachings in our churches that every single Sunday we're preaching the beginning of a Christian life? And when you try to go beyond that, how many times have I been preaching here at the well and, and I have somebody come up to me and say, that's just too deep. The people are not going to like that. That's too much. I've had people leave the well because they say, you're, you're too serious. That's too deep. I'm not taking notes. And we laugh, but how many of us are in the same place? You got a job. You got a, you, okay, you got a, an opportunity to get a raise at work, to take a position at work, to get a promotion. The boss comes to you and he says, look, I want you to study this handbook. I want you to study these programs. I want, to, I want you to study these things because you'll need to know that if you would like to have this promotion. 
If you'd like to have this position, then you're going to need to know these things, and you're going to need to take these tests to prove to us that you know these things, right? That you can discern between the one and the other. But so that you, does it make sense now? Say, okay, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You get the books, you buy the books, you buy the, you buy the manuals, you reading, you putting other things off, you ain't going to the gym, you ain't going to play with your friends, you ain't going to the movies, you tell your wife, you're like, I'm going to stay up late tonight, I'm going to, I'm going to deprive myself of sleep because I want this promotion. I'm going to study. I'm going to know which answers are right and which answers are wrong. And I'm going to know this stuff. I'm going to practice, 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 right? You go into that test. You fill that test out. and You make a 95. Just got the promotion. But God is calling you to study, to show yourself a workman approve of the calling that you've been called with. And you won't open the word of God to advance the kingdom. And what's your excuse? What's your excuse? What's our excuse? Oh, I've been saved. I've accepted the foundational teachings of Jesus Christ. I'm good. I'm not a theologian preacher. Yes, you are. You're just a bad one. You're a, you're a little immature child. That's not my language. You think I'm mean. That's not mean. That's the Bible. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying that you should be teachers right now. You should be ashamed of yourself. You should be able to really divide out this word of God. I can hear them now. How am I supposed to know all that stuff? What does he say? He actually repeats it twice. He says, uh, practice, practice. He said, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Practice, practice, practice. How do you practice? Practice on people. Open up the word. Study the word. Study it over and over and over and over and over. I already read that verse. Read it again. Study, 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 study. Memorize the text. Memorize scripture. St read other books from other people that you don't even agree with to know how to defeat that argument, right? Study, 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 study. How else? Get it ingrained in your mind. Memorize scripture like uh, Gary has. He's, he's, he's memorized scripture. He can recite it to you. How else can you practice? Go out and practice on people. You say, I, I, you know, how many people I say, I wish I, could, uh, I wish I could really share the gospel with people. I'd be like, how many people did you share the gospel with this week? Well, none because I can't do it. <laughs> how are you ever going to be good at something you won't practice at? Look, let's, let's do this. We're, we're all, so well, I don't know if we all are. I hope the majority of you are sovereign grace people, meaning that you believe that God is sovereign over everything, right? You can't save somebody, but God can through you. You see what I'm saying? God is in charge of who gets saved. Can we agree with that? Okay, God is sovereign. If he wants them saved, they're going to get saved. Jesus says, uh, no one come to me unless the Father draws him. He also says, all that the Father has given to me, they will come to me, and I will not lose not even one. Okay, now, if that's the truth, then you're a mere agents of gospel proclamation. We have this we have this treasure in jars of clay, right? You're the jars of, jars of clay. He's the treasure. As a matter of fact, you are to be, you, you are so rough and so rugged that you make the treasure, the diamond, look that much better. Like That's your job, right? To, to be rough, to show how wonderful the gospel is. <clears throat> so what do we say? Okay, well, I'm just going to, to proclaim the gospel. I'm going to do the best I can. And I'm going to trust the Lord to do his thing. I can't do it anyway. I'm just going to be obedient. And in the obedience is the blessing. Okay? Now, 
It's not in the success is the blessing. No, it's the obedience that's the blessing. So you can go out, be obedient, practice proclaiming the gospel to everyone that you come out to, to the point that you may be annoying. And in that, in that obedience, you will be blessed even when they spit in your face or tell you you're nuts or tell you you're crazy or you get fired. It will be a blessing. You don't have to believe me. Try it and see yourself. The blessing is in the obedience. But this is what I'm saying. You've got to practice. Talk to somebody about Jesus Christ. Share the gospel. And when you fall flat on your face, say, glory to God. I'm glad I'm not in charge of that salvation. Go back home, read the word of God, get excited about Jesus, and go out and try it again. But be careful lest you preach it really well and, you, and somebody gets saved and you're like, yes, I'm getting good at this. No, what did Paul say? Paul actually said this. I'm off track. I need to get back over here. But Paul actually said, I did not preach with eloquence of speech so that I did not make the proclamation devoid. What does he mean? He said, listen, if you are so focused on being such a good communicator that people fall in love with you and accept the message because of how good you proclaimed it, but they miss the meat of the gospel and they just have fallen in love with a wonderful communicator, then you've actually taken power away from the gospel. Because they've not come because of Christ, they've come because of how, really, how, how good of a communicator you are. So Paul says, I, I, I preach just Christ crucified. I didn't come with eloquence of speech because I didn't want them to come because I was really good at talking. I wanted them to come because of Christ. So if you're not really good at it, praise the Lord. <laughs> it's even better, right? It, it's, it's something that I know is spiritually discerned, and I'm praying for you, all right? So, okay, so we got salvation, baptism, commission. What's the next? This is amazing. He says, instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. He's saying these are the things that we need to leave behind and move on. We need to stop talking in the, in the gathering about salvation, baptism, commission, uh, what happens at death, and what happens after death. We're so focused on going to heaven. I mean, come on. If you can't see the overlay of this, the parallel of this on nominal Christianity, I don't know what I, I don't know how you can't see that. He's looking at these Jewish Christians and he's saying, look, you guys are, you came to Christ, you tasted, you saw it, and you accepted it supposedly. But now you're going right back to the old things. And every time I come in here, I have to talk to you about being saved, about going to heaven, about getting baptized, about, all, you know, about being commissioned and working for the Lord. And we find ourselves talking about this every single Sunday. Why are we coming back to this? Everybody has one beginning place. And after the beginning, you know, is the rest of the story. We can't get to the rest of the story because we have to go back to the beginning of it. And what does Paul do? He says, I'm not doing, or Paul, Apollos, whoever, I'm not going back to the beginning. And I, and I challenge you, I'm, we're not going to go back to the beginning every time, but that we're going to move on to maturity. We're going to talk about other things. Let's see if we can look and see what those other things are. But before I transition out of that, do you see the issue with, the, with nominal Christianity? I'm going to stop saying American church because it's just modern church, a lot of modern churches. Nominal Christianity. Nominal Christianity you may find yourself in this group or in this class. I don't know. You judge for yourself. Nominal Christianity is someone who has professed belief in Jesus Christ because that's what everybody else was doing around them. They have tasted, they have seen the benefits of Christ. They've said, yeah, I'm in with that. But they have stopped right there. 
And they have went back to their old ways. Maybe some things shifted. Maybe some things have changed. But they have not grown at all in their pursuit. They're not in love with Christ. They're not serving God's people. They're not pursuing after a greater righteousness and understanding. There's no fruit in their lives. There's no there's no compulsion in their lives. There's no love for Christ. They just they just looked at the foundational things, said, okay, and then they went right back to their old ways. That was what Paul or whoever the author is dealing with here, and that's exactly what we find that we need to deal with here in our day to day. It's just not Judaism; it's nominal Christianity. You see it. This is what we're dealing with. And this is the challenge that you're going to be faced with too. And I would challenge you to examine your own heart to see whether or not you be in the faith. Now let's move on because he's going to show us some of those evidences and I'm running out of time. Not doing too bad though. Okay, let's move on to verse 3. He says, and this we will do if God permits. Now, you had last week's sermon, okay? I'm not going to go back and preach last week's sermon again about the sovereignty of God and about what the reformation was all about salvation by grace through faith that not of yourself but a gift to god lest any man should boast and so what we see here is is that a recognition from the hebrew author to these jewish christians or to his audience that he says but i'm fully aware so he's saying you need to get beyond this you need to move on into maturity you need to leave the elementary teachings of christ and you need to get into these better things you need to get into these more extensive things but he acknowledges he says but I know that will only happen if God is the one permitting it or pushing it or bringing it about. So he acknowledges, and I don't, think it's just, I don't think it should just be looked over just like that, but I believe this is the author of the Hebrews saying to those who are listening to him that this will only happen if the Lord God Almighty permits it to happen. If he brings it about, then it will be brought about. Now, what will that do? Just two things. One it will encourage those who are hearing to know. Because a lot of people are sitting in the same place. Now, let me ask you if this is you. A lot of people have been sitting in the same place for five months, five years, 40 years. Why? Because they think that they don't have the ability to rightly divide the word, to proclaim to those out there, to move past the foundational teachings. They think that... They are unable to do these greater things, these better things, because they don't have the, the, the ability, they don't have the skill to move into this maturity, into this uh, further things, into this, into this life of Christianity. And so they've remained in the place of foundational salvation, baptism, resurrection teaching. They've just remained there. And they've been sitting in the same place for however many years, feasting on old bread. You know, there was a reason that in the wilderness, the teaching was that just gather enough for this day. Anything you hold over to the next day will have maggots and it'll be nasty and it'll make you sick. You have to gather new bread every single day. Jesus said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He who eats from me will never hunger again. You see, we need fresh supply every single day. And I'm afraid that many nominal Christians, if they are Christians, have been feeding off of the same bread for 20 years. They've been feeding off of the same bread for 5, 10, 20 years. And we need to move beyond that. 
here we understand so they think so many of you maybe many of the nominal christians think i can't do those things that's why they say that's the preacher's job because you think that i have some type of skill set or there's something about me that enables me to do what you can't do that's why i think that the hebrew author here puts this in here he says no no your your ability really has nothing to do with it i've already showed you through a couple of parallel texts and supporting texts that paul says that you know we know paul wasn't very good at talking and as a matter of fact seemed to be glad because he said i didn't come with lofty or eloquent speech because if i did that might weaken the gospel right and so here he says it's not your ability because god is the one that's going to bring the increase whether it be in knowledge or power proclamation god is the one that's doing that it's not dependent on you hamon has a saying that's kind of corny and cliche but i like it i think it's good he said it's not about your ability it's about your availability right god is not looking for geniuses as a matter of fact he's very clear in corinthians paul says uh, I chose the weak among you to shame the strong. I chose the foolish to shame the wise. God is not looking for an excellent orator, right? God is looking for a willing servant. And God will bring that. You need to move on from these things and trust that God. Secondly, it takes the weight off of the, the preacher. That all the preacher and the teacher and the assembly of the saints is to do is to be faithful to preach and teach God's word through the Bible, Right? So how many people, you know, they're, they're feeling like they're unsuccessful because they are faithfully exegeting and preaching and teaching God's word and people aren't responding to it. And that's why you see all of these programs. I mean, I don't know. I know Dakota, it was on his uh, news feed. It was on my news feed and Facebook too. There's this guy who has got these little promotional videos out and he says, grow your congregation to 250 people in less than two months. Well, what is it about? It's about pro promotional programs. It's about meeting the needs of the people. It's about advertisement. It's about how to decorate your church where it's more inviting. And this is how we get people to come into the church. If the people are coming to your church because of how awesome the lighting and the signs are, it's, it's, what is that good for? Right? You say, well, just, we just need to get them in. We just need to get them in. We just need to get them in. Well, I'm all for utilizing any, you know, to be wise as a serpent, yet harmless as a dove. I'm all for utilizing any techniques that we can get them before good exegetical preaching and teaching. But what I'm telling you is, is that the only way the church can reach maturity and truly grow the kingdom of God is to rightly divide the word of God and, have, and let it have its effect in God's people. And it's not, success is not to be gauged by how many people like what you're saying. We gauge success by the faithfulness and obedience to preach and teach the word of God. It's no different than when you go out there, success is not measured by how many people you can win to Christ. That's great if you can win a thousand. Success is measured by how faithful you were to be obedient to God and how you laid the word of God out rightly before your hearers. That's it. That's it. And this we will do if God permits. Well, let's move on. It says in verse 4, it says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and had shared in the heavenly, uh, and have shared 
in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. A lot of misunderstanding over this verse and a lot of controversy over this verse as well uh, for years now. I've, I've had many, many, many discussions over this verse. This would be the one, well, one of the few verses that those who preach that you can lose your salvation would come to and point out uh, Hebrews chapter 6, uh, verses 4 through 6. Um, so what the question, and it at the surface could seem to teach that, right? And so we have to ask ourselves, what does the verse really teach, what the verses really teach, and how do we harmonize that with the rest of the scripture? Well, you know, last week we talked a good bit about the perseverance of the saints and the security of the believer that Jesus Christ says, all the Father given to me will come to me and I will not lose not one of them. This is how I know I do the will of my Father. So the will of the Father for Jesus Christ is that he save all that the Father has given to me and that he doesn't lose one. So if the truth is, is that one can be saved and Jesus had him and then all of a sudden Jesus is like, oh, and lost him, then has Jesus done and completed the will of the Father? No, because G the will of the Father for Jesus is that he not lose any of them, but raise them up on the last day. That's John chapter 6, okay? So we know that those who are truly saved will go on to be lifted up in the last day, to be exalted in the last day, to be glorified in the last day. He won't lose any of them. So what is this teaching? Because it seems on the surface that you could fall away, that you could lose your salvation. Let's look at it. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again. Okay. So I want you to notice here, and I don't have a ton of time to really peel back the layers on this, but a couple of things that we could pick out right quick. First of all, let's, let's think about the context of what we have just come through. The last, the, you know, chapter five into the first parts of chapter six, what's he talking about? He's talking about those who were steeped in one tradition have received the, found, the beginning parts, have received these foundational teachings, and now need to move on into maturity. And I'm going to suggest in order to prove that they really had received the beginning foundational teachings. Now, that's going to reveal itself here in just a moment. But we know that that's the context is that he's saying, you guys should be well beyond where you are right now. But there's still a need to put the nipple in your mouth because you're still suckling on the milk of the very immature, foundational, beginning parts of Christianity. And it, the question is there. Why are you still infants? Why are you still in these beginning phases? Why are you not growing up? Why are you not maturing? Why are you not going into the greater things? How is it that you're still in this place? Now watch what he does here. He's, he lays out this reality that they're still infants. He commands and brings them into this place that we need to move past being infants and past the foundational things. Why? And this is where this comes in. The reason that you need to get past this is because it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted, so on and so forth, to be restored again to repentance. Wait, what? To be restored again to repentance. What he's saying is, okay, 
Now, I hope that this makes sense. What he's saying is, if you're in a place, I hope this comes across. Let, we're going we're gonna to say it two or three times if it doesn't. I want to make sure you get this. This is our problem. What he's saying is this. If, if you have seemingly accepted the foundational principles of Christ, but you have not matured on into actual Christianity, the repentance you have is not a true repentance. You have a false repentance. And while you are hanging on to this false repentance, there is no repentance for you to have to have true salvation. Does that, did that come across? Let me say it one more time for those who didn't shake their head yes. Let me put it in another way. How hard is it? Let me bring it into our era. How hard is it to speak to someone about getting saved, becoming a child of God, being born again? How hard is it to evangelize someone who said a prayer when they were in VBS, have punched their ticket, have their fire insurance, and now have no desire for Christ whatsoever? How hard is it? Is there room for them to truly repent when they have married the idea that they need no repentance, yet the repentance that they have has zero works and is proving that they never actually came in to what they tasted, what they shared in, and what they seen from a distance, saw from a distance? Does that come across? For it is impossible. Now, would this mean that, you know, if they wanted that repentance, that God wouldn't let them have it? I think that's a stretch. What I think is, is that this is such a dangerous place that they don't realize it. But having, having tasted, and I'm going to touch on that in just a second, having come into so close to it, they think, I've got it. And the reason it's impossible, I think, is the same reason that the unforgivable sin is the unforgivable sin. Anybody know what the unforgivable sin is? Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Why is it unforgivable? Is it like if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit and you realize how wrong you were and now you come back around and you plead with God, not blaspheming the Spirit anymore, that he's like, nope, you did the one thing you shouldn't. Sorry. I don't think that's what that means. The reason that the unforgivable sin, I'm, I'm saying this for a reason, the reason that the unforgivable sin is unforgivable is because you are blaspheming the very one where that brings forgiveness to you. The unforgivable sin is unforgivable because you refuse to receive forgiveness. That's your fault too. It's unforgivable because you refuse to receive forgiveness. Because the only one that can bring forgiveness is the Holy Spirit. So it's like you're holding the door shut on your own forgiveness. That's on us. That's on the person who will not believe. It's unforgivable because you will not be forgiven. Do you understand that? Here it is also the case, I believe, now this is my understanding of this, is that it's impossible to restore them again to repentance because they think they've already repented. Does that make sense? You tell somebody, okay, you've got somebody who was, you know, said a prayer when they were 13, and they, you know, went down front, they repeated a prayer after a preacher, and they're good now. 
They, never, they were never discipled. They never progressed on. They never grew. They never loved God's word. They were never burning with a yearning and a, and a, and a longing for Christ. They went their way. They went back into their sin. They continued on and never even turned back. Now, I don't know the heart. I can't judge the heart. But looking at the fruit and the evidence, can we rightfully say that that person is saved? Absolutely not. There is no assurance. Now, could they be saved and have turned? Sure, I guess. But there's no assurance whatsoever. And we're going to talk about assurance here in just a second. You look at that person, you say, dude, there's no way that there's no way that you can confidently think that you're truly born again. Bro, you need to be saved. I'm not saved. I said a prayer when I was 12. You see? You see? This that is the modern day parallel to what these guys were doing with here. You see? This is this is a major major issue in the American church in the modern church. You see the issue? It's a major issue. And I mean, let's let's face it, like we've got tons of empty chairs here, and I'm not trying to point a finger at you. But why don't you guys go out there and fill these chairs? Are you waiting on me to do it? Are you waiting on Elder Robert to do it? You waiting on who you waiting on? You if you understand my message today, you understand. That that empty seat beside you, everybody look and see if there's an empty seat beside you. You got lucky if it wasn't. That's your seat, brother. That's your seat, sister. Get out there and put your money where your mouth is and get away from trying to come back in here and be saved again. If you're a child of God, there no longer remains a need for you to get saved. Now you just need to grow up and go do the work of God. Bring people into the fold. That's not my job. I mean, it's our job, but don't look at me and say, well, that's your job. No, it's literally not. It's literally your job. It's not my job. It's your job. Actually, it's our job, right? We got to go out there and proclaim the goodness of God. And, and they, they receive Christ there. Come in here and let's grow them up, right? And grow up yourselves. Pray for me that I can grow up. And we need to get past. Well, just to touch on a few of these things, why I don't think that this is a loss of salvation in any means. It says, for it is impossible in the case of those, watch how many, watch how many words here that indicate some type of um, coming up to the line, but never stepping over it, right? What did Jesus say? I'm the bread of life. He's, Jesus said, he who eats my flesh, like that's literally what he said. I'm surprised one of the disciples, especially Peter, didn't take a bite out of that joker, right? Because Peter is a literalist, right? He's like, you know, oh, oh, duh. You know, <laughs> Jesus is like, chill, dude. He cut that soldier's ear off. I'm surprised Peter did not bite Jesus when he said that. But anyway, Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be saved. You cannot be one of my disciples. See what he says. Unless you take me into your body. Remember how Ezekiel was told, eat the scroll. Remember that? And Ezekiel ate the scroll. Where did it go? Here. I'm giving you a hint. Where'd it go? You just smile at me. Where did it go? Into his belly. Sorry. I know you're tough enough for me to do that. It went into his belly. As a matter of fact, when it went in, he's like, it tasted 
sweet as honey, but it went, when it went down, man, it tore me up, right? That's what he's going to say. So we know that he didn't just taste it, he ate it. It went all the way in. He consumed it, right? He was craving, but he, but he ate the whole thing. He didn't just, you taste a sucker. I don't, do you eat suckers? I don't eat suckers. I, I, I mean, I can't just taste a sucker. I, I eat them. You know, I'm like that owl on that commercial. One, two, three, three. It takes three, right? But listen to what it says here. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened. They've been enlightened. They, they have gotten an idea. They, they've been, they, they've seen it. They've, oh man, that's, that's good. They've been enlightened, right? But I just, now again, a little speculation, a little examining of the text. This word seems to indicate that they were not fully aware of it. That they had not wholeheartedly understood and believed, but they had been enlightened to it. They had gotten a taste of it, which is what he says next. He says, those who have been enlightened, who have just tasted, they've tasted the heavenly gift. But he goes on, and have shared in the Holy Spirit. That's not the language of a, a true believer, not that I've read, but, but have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's what Romans chapter 8 says. It says anyone who is of Christ does have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them does not belong to Christ. It's not a sharing in the Holy Spirit. It's an indwelling by the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt to the Holy Spirit. See, it just seems to these that they've tasted it. They've been enlightened to it. They've shared in it. They've touched it. They've gotten just enough to inoculate them from it. Do we do that, people of God? You know, you know, this points all, so we can do like this, but it points all the fingers right back at us. You know what's going on here? Is a lack of discipleship. How many times do we preach at a VBS or we preach at this and we preach at that and somebody says, oh, I'm saved. And you're like, woohoo, man, you're not going to hell. But we don't take them up under our wing and teach them the things of God and hold them accountable and push them and ask them questions. Have you been reading? Have you been studying? Let's sit down. Let's study. That's one thing I love about many of you. Is that you didn't just it, just, it wasn't just one and done, but man, you, you went after it. You got into the Word, you're studying. There's classes, there's like two or three classes here every Sunday morning. That I didn't, that I, or none of the elders that I know, well, one of the elders is leading one of them, I think, but it wasn't programs in the church that we said, hey, we're going to have this class, this class, this class, and this class. No, it was people who said, I want to study some more. Who will sit down with me? And ten other people said, I want to go, I want to study, I want to learn. That's amazing. It's amazing. Well, I think that that's what it's talking about. One that has seemingly come so close, so tasted it, but has then fallen away. And one uh, commentator says it uh, pretty clearly. This is what he said. He says, uh, he says, the writer is... Um, envisioning people who have been numbered among the followers of Christ but now leave that company. They've been numbered. It may very well be indicative of, and think about this, think about the parallel again, the, the application. How many people, even here at the well, 
man, they come in here and they get on fire. They taste that heavenly gift and woo-wee, right? I love it, man. I love I love to come in here and worship with y'all and that we'll be singing and worshiping the Lord and the Holy Spirit getting to moving and you jumping and you jiving and you loving it and it's exciting and, and you come up here and you praying and somebody who has been uh, touched by that, they've tasted that, man, they run up here and they could just slide in on their knees, get saved, right? And they, they taste this heavenly give, man, they're enlightened, they hear the preaching, they, woo-wee, yes, let's do it. And then four months later, they're gone. You calling them, you texting them, you going by and seeing them. And they're like, oh, preacher, I know, man, it was so good. That's what they tell me. I said, man, it was thick up in there, right? He said, well, why did you leave? Well, I just got busy, preacher. Got, well, you know, I got to work. You know, I, I, I just... Sunday's my only day off. It's the only time I get to rest. Right? They tasted it, man. It seemed like, and in the first month, you was like, whoa, man, this one's going to be on fire for God, right? It lasted a month, last a year, last two years. And now you see all their posts on Facebook where they, you know, doing something completely different on Sunday morning. You're like, what happened? What happened? Hey, what happened, man? What happened? <laughs> and, it, and you know, we make light of it, but I make light of it to keep from crying. What happened to my brother? What happened to my friend? And I'm calling him. I'm like, man, we miss you, man. What's going on? Oh, 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 oh. Man, I don't know whether to cry and weep and mourn over him or go just jerk him up by the shirt. I'm telling you. And some of y'all I'm close enough to, I will jerk you up by the shirt if you ever leave. <laughs> Me and Dakota about fought one day in his house. Hey, I ain't lying, am I? It was just about a fist fight. He better be glad he was drunk because I would have jumped him. All right? How many years now? Three years. Praise the Lord, brother. Praise the Lord. But yeah, it's just, you know, they taste it, they see it, and you see the spark. It's like a spark, but it's never, never catches flame. Well, I'm, I'm about out of time. Let me run through the, the rest of these. Uh, the actual, the, the um, title of my sermon today was The Things That Belong to Salvation. And I think this is another indication that what he's talking about here when he talks about for it's impossible to restore them. What I think he's saying there is, is that they were never up, truly of salvation. You can't be restored to something you were never really a part of. And so listen to what he says here. He says, for land that has, this is verse 7, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. You see what he's doing here. He's using a, um, a, a, he's using an illustration to demonstrate his point. So he's talked about these people who have been enlightened, they've tasted, they've received the foundational things, but they, they never grew and and they fell away and now there's no there's no salvation for them they, and he got, he said right before this little illustration he says for they're they're crucifying christ all over again that's a little bit of controversial uh place in the text as well i like how this author here said it as well he said the author is about the crucif about them crucifying christ all over again 
The author here says, this is Leon Morris, he says, the author is saying that those who deny Christ in this way are really taking their stand among those who crucified Christ. In heart and mind, they make themselves one with those who put him to death on the cross of Calvary. Basically, they can't repent, and it's impossible because they've chosen to stand with those who, cru who crucified Christ. They, take, they crucify him all over again. There is no plan B. The reason it's impossible is because they've shut the door on plan A, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and they've taken their stand with those who have crucified Christ, which is necessarily and essentially what you're doing when you say out of your mouth that, oh, yeah, those things are good, but you live a life that would say, I don't care anything at all about those things. Your actions will prove your heart. You understand that? Your actions will prove your heart. We all live out of the fullness of our heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you speak evil, if you cheat, if you lie, you steal, then that is the outworking and the flowing of your life out of what's actually in your heart. Your actions tell on you. He gives us illustrations. says, the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on and produces a crop useful for those who, uh, whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. He says those, and this reminds me of the parable of the sower, right? The parable of the sower, same thing. You know, there, the seed fell all along the, the ground and some fell on the rocky soil, some fell, fell on the shallow soil and all this type of stuff. And some of them really appeared to, to grow, but they didn't have roots or they withered really quickly and proved themselves to not have um, uh, abiding um, uh, soil abiding roots and and true true growth right they prove themselves to not actually be um, a worthy plant a, a wholesome plant this reminds me of that verse 8 but if it bears thorns and thistles it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned they were never any good for anything and what 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 is the proof of which one was good and which one was bad which one was true and which one was not the fruit that they produced, the, the crop that they produced, right? It was the fruit. It was the evidence of whether or not it was actually beneficial, if it was actually blessed of God. And I think this lends itself to the um, interpretation of verses six through, or four through six, that it's really not talking about someone losing their salvation, but it's talking about distinguishing between those who had truly been saved and those who had not, Okay. Now, ending in verses 9 through 12, and, and this will uh, be where we stop. Though we, now, listen to what he says. This is really, really encouraging. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Okay, what's the better things? Okay, we've talked a lot about the negative things. We've talked a lot about the things we need to get past. We've talked a lot about the things that seem to prove that we never really were in the, in the um, family of God to begin with. He says, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I would say that what this seems to be teaching is, remember he's talking to Jewish Christians, he's saying, look, there are things that you have going on in your life. There are, there are realities in your life that are not things of salvation. They're not truly things of salvation. Y'all trekking with me? Y'all with me so far? Put yourself in this situation. He's talking to these Jewish Christians. He's saying, listen, there are some things in your life that are not of salvation. These things are of something else. 
These things are pointing us to the reality that you may not actually have repented and had faith in God. These things are pointing us to the reality that you may not be in the family of God. These things are pointing us, these things are proving that you never really had true salvation. But, but I'm, I'm hoping I'm wrong in that, and I'm believing differently for you. That's what he's saying here in the text. He says, we feel sure, though, that that's not you. Now, remember, he did say that they were immature, right? He's already said that. But what he's doing is now he's encouraging them and he's pushing them and he's drawing them into this place. He said, your current reality is you're dull of hearing, you're babies, you're looking for a nipple. It's very, actually, it's, it's pathetic, right? I mean, it seems to be. But that's not where you're going to stay. People who stay there, they, they find their, their lives are, have, have been a joke they're not truly saved. People who stay there are crucifying Christ all over again. People who stay in this place of infancy and they don't love God and they don't grow and they don't come to maturity. It's impossible for them to be re renewed to salvation and to repentance. Why? Because they think they have a repentance that's false and they've accepted that. But that's not you, church. Please don't let that be you. Please don't let that be who you prove yourselves to be. Please don't be found out that when the Lord comes on that day and you stand before him, that you say, Lord, Lord, and he says, get away from me. I never knew you. That's what this is about. You've said, Lord, Lord, but did you pursue after him? Did you love him? Did you long for him? Did you study his word? Did you practice it? Did you every day? You're not that you have to be perfect, but that your heart really burns for Christ, that you really long for him, that you're words and your language and your conversations are all salted and peppered with the Lord Jesus Christ that every time you open up your mouth you're looking for the doorway that God has opened for you to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that somebody might be saved and come to the family of God that when you sit under the teaching whether it be mine or you're listening to sermons or you're reading books that you're praying God mature me grow me up help me with understanding help me with who you are so that I might better proclaim who you are to the people around me do you practice? Do you see somebody like, that's a good person to practice on. Hey, man, what's up? Hey, hold on a second. Right? Chris, how many years ago was it when I invited you to the movies? Two years ago. I miss a lot of opportunities. I miss a lot of opportunities, but God is really weird. And you can, oftentimes, you can know you're following God because what he asks you to do is just strange, right? And well, it's not strange, but it's uncomfortable. Let's say it that way. I felt like the Lord was like, Chris Sheely was helping me coach Little League football. And I didn't know Chris all that well. We had coached, you know, together. The Lord's like, call Chris up and invite him to the movies. All right. But first, I didn't say all right. I was like, uh. He's like, invite Chris to the movies. I'm like, all right. So there was a group of us going to the movies, and I called Chris up, and I'm like, hey, Chris, man, you want to go to the movies? And he's like, this is Chris Sheila. Do you have the right number? <laughs> I promise. That's what he said. Is it not? And I, I'm like, I looked at my phone. I was like, I called you, didn't I? <laughs> and he's like, oh, uh, yeah. You know, I was like, well, do you want to go to the movies or not? He's like, oh, uh, okay. All right? And so uh, we go to the movies, and uh, develop a relationship. I'm sharing the gospel with Chris and, you know, sharing Christ with him. And, and he's a believer. But this relationship grows out of this. And now he's, he's one of my best friends. And we, we work together. Man, he's, his family's involved at church. And, and I say all that to say, 
if you will take that, and it's just seemed weird to me, right? But if you will just, when you hear the Lord speak, it's not complicated. When you hear the Lord speak, pick up the phone, call. When you hear the Lord, and you, you hear it all the time, and you'll know when you hear it. Okay, listen, I'll give you the indications. Okay, you ready? Whenever you see someone, grocery store, school, work, wherever, whenever you see someone and you didn't even realize that you heard anything, now watch this, and all of a sudden in your spirit you say, no, nah, I can't go over there and share with that guy. Your spirit has gotten word from the Holy Spirit that you should go over there and share the gospel with that person and you didn't even realize, but now you're trying to talk yourself out of something that you didn't even realize you was told to do. How many have done that? See there? Somebody shows up, an opportunity arises with your children, whatever it might be, and in your head, all of a sudden, you start having a conversation with yourself that says, no, I can't go over there. Where did it come from? I promise you, Satan ain't saying, go over there and share the gospel with them. Right? God is leading you. He's calling you. Now, you think that might be hyper-spiritual, whatever. When God calls you to act, just do it. Just remember, this we will do if God permits. Well, He's got this encouragement for them. He says, for God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints. He says, he's saying that don't be stifled and don't be sitting still. Get after God. Go after him. Pursue after the Lord. Chase after him. God sees what you're doing. He knows what, what your heart is. He sees all the work you're putting in, and he knows the motivation behind it. What's the motivation? He says, and we desire each one. Oh, no, go back. For God is not unjust as to overlook what? Your work. Okay. Well, we know that Jesus says, you've done all these things, but you're far from me. Okay. What work then? He says, God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and the saints. The only work that counts is a love. I mean, the only work that counts is a work that springs forth from your love of God. Does, you, does that make sense? You can work all you want to, but if it doesn't come from your love and, and your salvation, the, the relationship that you, your longing for God, then you're trying to work to earn the favor of God, and that never works. But if out of see, this is why it's indicative of true salvation. Because true salvation is the love of God implanted in your soul, written on your heart, the love of Christ in you, compelling you to go and to do. And that's why it's indicative of true salvation. And what comes along with that? Had this conversation at Bucket Group the other night. It says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. See how it's talking about will and desire and love. You see, the love of a truly born-again Christian doesn't come out of obedience to gain favor with God. It comes out of obedience because we're in love with God. It is the love of Christ written on us that we long to please our Master, our Savior, our, our God, that we want to go. This is... Uh, what shows us by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome to us it's a desire it's a delight he says 
And, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope to the end. We made a distinction the other night in our bucket group between justification, sanctification, and assurance. You see, these people thought that they were justified. They thought that they were being sanctified, but there was no assurance. Why? Because there was no progress. Because there was no fruit. Because there was no crop. Because there was no desire to move past the elementary things on into the, the things of maturity. So again, as we turn and reflect on these things, seeing the context of the Jewish Christians needing to leave their old ways and come fully into the new covenant, pursuing after Christ, loving Christ, uh, becoming mature in Christ, moving on to the deeper things in Christ, we see ourselves too, don't we? We see nominal Christians in the Bible Belt and all over the world who have said a prayer, thought that the prayer saved them, but never moved past it, only to prove themselves to be a child of hell twice over. Why do I say that? It's because Peter tells us that it would have been better for you to have never have heard. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 21. It would have been better if you would have never heard this than to have heard it and moved away. It says that we would have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. Stand to, to your feet, please. When you examine your life, examine whether or not you love God, pursue after God, practice, practice, practice His Word to be able to discern good and evil. That you should be teachers by now, are you? Or are you still needing for us to stick the nipple in your mouth so that you can have a little drink? You should be chewing up the steak, not on the bottle, chewing up steak and sharing it with those around you. Yes, that you could bring people into the faith, and they are spiritual babes, and we can feed them the milk, okay? We can, we can bring the bottle to them. Some people need that, but at some point, we need to move beyond that. And when we stay in that place of infancy, we learn that it's proof that we're dead. A child that never grows up is only a case of a child that dies in infancy. That's just the reality of where we are. So this morning, as you examine your own heart, as I examine mine, do business with God and to see what steps you need to take and where you need to ask God to give you repentance and to bring you out of that place of immaturity into the place that you need to be. And this week as we move forward, be listening for the Lord to lead you, sharing the gospel, leading people to Christ, teaching people about Christ and the scripture, and just be obedient. That's where blessing remains. Do business with God.